Well, I want to uh, start the, the talk off this morning with telling a story. Uh, the story I heard this week, and it's about us, it's from a celebrity podcaster, and he's telling his story about how he came to, to faith. And uh, he was a young man where the story starts, and he goes into the army. He's, he's probably 20 years old, and he's at odds with his mother for doing so. His mom didn't want him to go to the army. In addition to that, he has all these terrible habits associated with his youth, like just smoking dope and drinking and do, doing everything that he doesn't want, that his mom doesn't want him to do. And he goes to the army against his mom's will, and he comes back from the army. He gets home, and he's broke, and he's in debt, and he's now an incredibly wealthy person. That's why he's like an influential podcaster. And he's in, he's in debt, um, $49,000. And he comes to this place where he's just, he's living in the wake of his bad decisions associated with his youth. And he's absolutely out of touch with his mom. He lost touch five years earlier, and there's been no regaining uh, relationship since. Haven't spoken at all in five years. So it's 2 a.m. one night in his life, he's come home, and he's become honest about where he's at. And he's in bed late at night and he's crying. Like, unique situation. He's probably like late, late 20s-ish. And he's, he's crying in bed and he makes this plea to God, which is really, like, he doesn't do that. This is the most private version of himself. And he says, God, if you're real, he's frustrated by the state of affairs of his life. He says, God, if you're real, uh, I want to hear the voice of my mom. Just like an interesting test, I guess, of God. Uh, he says, uh, with no word of a lie, 30 seconds later, his phone rings. He's in bed late at night. His phone rings. He picks it up. He looks at it. And it's a blocked number. And so he uh, like suspiciously grab, takes the phone. I guess swipes across the screen if it's an iPhone. It's a little bit of an older story. Puts it, to its, he puts it to his ear, and then he hears his, mom, he hears his mom weeping on the other side. And he's crying, and he says to his mom, who he hasn't spoken to in five years, how do you have my number, mom? And why are you crying? Like just a, he doesn't get it. He's, he's kind of taken off guard that it's his mom calling him, but also at the same time, it's like she's crying, and it's 2 a.m., there's all these odd factors going on. She answers back in the phone, I got your number six, six months ago, but I didn't want to call you. But God told me that you're in pain. <coughs> we're in a series this summer, and we're reflecting on how God can orchestrate grand events for the well-being of, of his people. And we've chosen this topic because we're in the process, like Greg alluded to, of the life plan, where we're discerning as a community, what's our next challenge and we need, we need to reflect on stories that tell us about God's grandeur and his ability to be able to step into what we will articulate as that next challenge. So, Lord, we uh, come to your scriptures this morning. We're here as a community, and we just come with transparency together and um, in ourselves, uh, wanting to receive more from you this morning, Lord. Amen. So we're in Exodus 5. You don't need your Bibles just yet. We're going to jump in in a moment. And, uh, man, I got so confused by this book of Exodus. I had to just do, like, a pile of research. And I've been doing the Moravian reading, but to understand it and those undergirding things or whatever I said, it just took, like, a lot of work. So I want to share with you guys 
uh, kind of like my the harvest that I gathered or whatever. Uh, just some kind of baseline details that I think will just give us a better scoop or better lenses to look through the passage this morning and then hopefully what comes in the next few weeks. And thanks, Mike, for last week, Mr. A, for getting us started. That was awesome and pivotal for, for me continuing today. So Exodus, is it a familiar book to you guys? Like, raise your hand if you've read it and love it and read it every day. <laughs> yeah, like, likely not. Uh, in the same boat. But uh, it's the most appealed to and referred to story in the entire Old Testament. And it's, the, it's just the second book of the Bible. Like it, For the whole rest of the, Testament, the Old Testament, it's the most appealed to story. And that's because it's the sealing event where Yahweh, God, uh, confirms his covenant with Israel through a series of acts of deliverance, and judgment. We're kind of going. We're kind of going underwater. We're only going to be there for a while. Then we'll come up. But if I get too academic on you, just just hang in there. Uh, and it's he's, it's kind of in the same way that uh, marrying your spouse and then having a child would seal a covenant. That's what's happening in Exodus. It's this event that seals the covenant between Yahweh and the people of Israel. But there's there's more to it than that. It's a it's a it's an event that defines Yahweh's name. And it's that Yahweh is a God, unlike the rest of the other gods in the ancient Near East, he's a God who's interested in liberating his people, in particular when they're in suffering and in pain. So this is what one scholar says. He says, uh, in ancient writings, like the Bible, a name was way more than a label you used to make a dinner reservation or to sign up for a spin cast or file taxes with the IRS. Your name was your identity, your test, your destiny, the truth hidden in the marrow of your bones. It was a one-word moniker for the truest thing about you. Whole different definition. Your inner essence, your inner tomness or ruthness. One old one Old Testament scholar writes, in a word, the Hebrew scripture, sorry, in the word of the Hebrew scriptures, a personal name was often thought to indicate something essential about the bearer's identity, origin, birth circumstances, or the divine purpose that the bearer was intended to fulfill. So we have two key concepts this morning. The first one, uh, Exodus is about God maintaining his commitment to Israel. That's, that's that undergirding thing. It's about God maintaining his commitment to Israel. There's a second one. It's this commitment that displays his name or his character, that, es that essence, to everyone around in the Near East. So it's about God maintaining his, this, agree this, this covenant he's made with his people. Then on the other hand, it's about uh, displaying who he is. It's this, it's this commitment with these people that's going to represent his character and essence to not only that people, but to everyone else in the ancient Near East. So quick outline, I'm going to take you through Exodus in three small movements. Uh, the first movement, it begins with Israel and slavery, then Moses is raised up, that was, that's where we were last week, it's this burning bush experience, this exchange, then there's the showdown with Pharaoh, that's where we are this week, Exodus 5, then there's 10 plagues, the 10th one ending in the Passover, and then there's the splitting of the Red Sea. The second movement, it's the journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Uh, just catching you guys up here. Yahweh meets them in the thunderstorm. God meets them in the thunderstorm and gives them the law. 
He wants them to come close, but they're scared. So Moses says, Yahweh's testing us. Moses goes up on the seventh day, and then essentially they're, they're bound. They got married, Israel and uh, Yahweh. Third movement, it's all about the blueprints of the tabernacle. I don't even think we're going to get there in that series, and it, I think that would just yeah, it'd be tough to get through. And then Israel, despite having just made a covenant with Yahweh, they break the covenant and they start worshiping a golden calf. And Moses has to intercede on behalf of that community. And uh, he has to remind Yahweh, like, hey, this is who you said you would be. This is actually what it means to be Yahweh. This is your essence. Let's forgive us. Let's make a new covenant. The tabernacle is built, and then it ends with Moses surprisingly not being able to enter into that tabernacle. So the, the central issue of the text is that, that we're heading into is that Pharaoh is challenging Yahweh as he's challenging Yahweh's essence. He's saying, No, this is not your opportunity to be a liberator of your people. That's not it. So we're gonna jump in. If you have a Bible on your phone or you have it in paper form. Um, we're just going to read through it. It's, it will only be about like 14 passages or something. And then I'll just do a bit of commentary. <coughs> Good, guys? Got your phones? <laughs> 14 passages or 14 verses? <laughs> right. For, uh, we're going from 1 to... 1 to 9, and then skipping from 19 to 23. Yeah, so verses. There's always one in the call of dying. Yeah, no kidding. My, my father. That's probably the easiest. That would be the easiest person to receive some critique from. Okay, verse 1. We're all there. Exodus 5. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go. We all know that refrain from the Prince of Egypt. You guys watch that movie? They get kind of captured into the feels for this morning. I started it again last night, which the last time I watched it was ages ago. Let my people go so that they might hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Peculiar statement, but Moses and his brother Aaron are going into the court of Pharaoh, which is like incredible. Who just has the right to walk into like, the, the U.S. Capitol. It's an interesting situation that these two can mosey all the way in. Verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So there is a, a pantheon of Egyptian gods, and when there's a monarchy uh, in, in that ancient world, those, those people that are in charge understand themselves as God, and Pharaoh has no interest in acknowledging Yahweh, but instead he wants to challenge who Yahweh is. Verse 3, Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met us. This is Aaron and Moses talking. The God of the Hebrews has met, met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us down with, or he might strike us with plagues and with the sword. To be honest, I do not even understand that passage just yet. I didn't like, I didn't dig in enough to, to understand what's actually going on there. So if you're thinking that's bizarre, I am as well. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look the people of 
Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you're stopping them from working. So Pharaoh's choked that at one point, Joseph's in Israel. Uh, this would be Moses's, like, it's a relative of Moses, essentially. He's in Israel. Joseph becomes very prosperous, but now it's another Pharaoh in the situation, and he's frustrated that this group of Hebrews has become numerous, and in particular, as I understand it, it's that their young men are becoming like strong and capable of labor and work. And what, they're, what Pharaoh's fearful of is that, oh my goodness, there's this growing population who are in a tight-knit web of relationships. What happens if they want to strike against us? So this is where we get three movements of where Moses, or where Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites. And then secondly, he takes, he starts killing off every male baby in, in, the, in, in Egypt. And then thirdly, what we're going to run into, what we're running into here is that he's going to increase the labor because he's, he's just in such sharp disagreement with, and, and he's fearful of who these people are going to become in that uh, city. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bri bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce their quota. So he's just getting harsh. They are lazy. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God, make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Uh, have you ever been like rejected in a, in a relationship in some, some sort of setting? You know, that's not a raise your hand situation. I wouldn't put you guys to it. But that's essentially what just happened. Moses is speaking on behalf of Yahweh. And he says, let, my pe like, let these people go. And Pharaoh's saying, like, no, not a chance. And then adds insult to injury. And he's upping their labor. So that's, that's what's going on in the text. I'm skipping down to 19 now. The Israelite overseers realized that they're in trouble when they were in trouble when they were told. Hold up. The Israelite overseers realized that they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron wanting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh, and his officials have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So this is a situation where Moses and Aaron, tempting to do something good, but it backfires badly. This is what now Moses has to say. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble to this to, on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, in your like to speak of your character and your authority in that setting, he's brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued the people at all. So plan, in Moses' eyes, plan is fully diverted. Uh, there was this story when I was like 14 or 15 years old. We're, kind of, we're, go, we're, we're up out of the water. That was the deep dive, folks. So there was this story when I was 14 or 15 years old. And uh, my group of friends, we weren't like uh, football players or lacrosse players or like in theater like some of you guys are. I would probably say like the group of people I hung out with was a bit more of like the skater crowd. Like... Uh, I, like, I guess we thought we were cool. I guess that, that's how you kind of would say it. You were, 
Yeah, maybe maybe we were. I mean, I still am. So. Yeah, uh, you are. <laughs> So we were at the skate park one day. I'm a wannabe BMXer and skateboarder. I tried longboarding. That was like my only access point into extreme sports. And we're there one day, and my friends are like, they're rough, they're rough housing kids, but they all kind of, uh, I don't know, they, just, they didn't really get involved with like crime or anything. And we ran into this one kid, and right off the bat, we knew that this kid, like, he had a few things going on. One of the indicators was is that he's always, he's just smoking lots of pot. He's like 16 years old. So we're at the skate park. My rambunctious friend's getting a tiff with this guy, which I'm like, oh my goodness, because I'm like the voice of caution always to that group. Like, no, don't jump off of that and don't try that. And there was like a time when my friend tried to write like a... a tried to ride a fixed gear bike in the park and like fully bailed and smashed his face open. So these friends get into a fight with this one guy and this young guy and he's, he has a bag and his hands in the bag and we don't know like what's in the bag but he's, he's coming at us as if there's something in the bag that would be like very threatening to our well-being. Sure enough, it's just like the, the 15 year old testosterone aggression just it's going through the roof at this moment and the kid grabs this thing of bear mace and we we were like whoa like we're we're getting out of the way because we're surprised because that's like not really the that's not what we get up to so in that moment i'm obviously freaking out because i'm the voice of caution with this group i happen to have four older siblings that i i could call on a few of them in that circumstance I'm tight with one of my older brothers, and he is, I idealize him majorly at this point. So I have him on the phone, I'm like, dude, you gotta, you gotta come down here, I don't know what this guy's gonna do. He has bear mace, they're trying to fight us, I don't know if he has friends. So my brother races down, and then by the time he gets there, he's in, he's in like his, his vehicle that I thought was really cool. Uh, by the time he gets there, this guy has, He's left fully, and I think the cops got called because like the leisure centers heard about it. But uh, what we anticipate in the rest of Exodus is that God God takes this moment where Pharaoh insults his name, and he just Yahweh starts to to throw down, and he, he throws down to the point of where he's doing something that we look at today as very heinous, where he's endorsing pretty well the death of all the firstborn people of Egypt, which is interesting because it's the polar opposite of what Jesus teaches. Why is Yahweh in this circumstance saying, go ahead, like, you know, he, it's, he's orchestrating an event where young boys are dying, but then we read about Jesus, and Jesus polar, gives the polar opposite message. His teaching is, in those moments, you turn the other cheek, like you give them the other cheek. So how does that, how does what Yahweh is doing in this circumstance reconcile with Jesus' motive of enemy love? I want to read to you guys just one description from a few chapters down. It's Exodus 12, and this is just getting at what, like uh, that situation when Yahweh is endorsing this, as, as we understand it as a reader. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's own kid, who, sa who sat on the throne next to be in the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Just like, what? Come on, Yahweh, that's like too far. 
Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in all of Egypt, for there was not a house without someone, without someone dead. Wild, eh? Are you guys all familiar with those details? Yeah. Uh, so why does God throw down so hard in, in that circumstance? And I think we only have attempts at understanding this. Um, so I'm going to share three that a scholar provided. And you can make what you want with them. You just might be in sharp disagreement. I'm giving them a shot. So this is what he says. Exodus is the, I'm kind of reading his words. So ex, well, it was, he said it on a podcast, so I transcribed them and then added a few bits. Exodus is a dictionary entry of the character of God. So point one, appealed to and remembered over and over again as the foundational narrative of who God is to his covenantal people. So not to Egypt, but to Israel. This is a story about what? God maintaining his covenant to Israel and secondly, making his name known. So that's one reason. Secondly, that there is an honor and shame dynamic in pretty well all cultures in the ancient Near East, as I understand it. And the reputation of one's name or the people that they're associated with is of highest value. So when there's a contest, when there's a contest between the names of people, such as Pharaoh in Egypt and Israel and Yahweh, Yahweh has to throw down because Yahweh's name is to be associated with the liberation of all of creation from the snake. And the snake in this case is the, is the imperial oppressor, Pharaoh. That's the reason too. Reason three, Israel is God's chosen people. There's a verse earlier in Genesis that says, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So now here's a group of people cursing them. So God has to do right by his promise. But then Jesus, at the end of his life, he lets the snake take his life. He lets the snake take his life. So it seems uh, what this scholar is saying is that what God wants at this point in the story is to attach his name to a people group and their institutions, which these seem to be fitting with the culture of the time. Then eventually Jesus critiques those institutions and faces the snake head on and brings us into an entirely different style of covenant for that is no longer an, a way of operating by any means. It's, it's, in fact, it's nonviolent. So I learned this. Uh, we're, we're coming to the end, by the way, guys. What's our time at? 11, 11.40, a few minutes. So I came across, I don't really know what you call it. I guess you would call it like a relationship typology. There's another fancy academic word. All that means is that it's a way to identify, um, like, or I guess categorize different relationships in your life. But it's been really helpful for me. So this one uh, author, he gives these three labels to kind of three functioning relationships that are usually important to, to anybody. So first off, he says that there's colleagues in your life, there's comrades in your life, and then there's confidants in your life. So just a quick word on each. Uh, a comrade. A comrade is somebody, or no, let's start with a colleague. A colleague is somebody who you share the same vision with. It's like you guys are united over the vision. That's a, that's a colleague. A comrade is different because they're not, they're for the vision on one hand, but then they're also for the fight. So there's like a step in intimacy where a comrade is somebody who you, there's more intimacy and you're fighting for whatever end. But then a confidant is really unique because a confidant 
sure for the fight, sure for the vision, but most importantly, they're, they're there for you and they're, they're laser focused on you. And it, this is kind of my knee jerk reaction to who's that in the lives of most people is likely apparent. And I think that's the style that Yahweh has with Israel right now. It's just full blown protection against an imperial oppressor who's is just like being so awful to these people that he's made a commitment to protect. I don't understand all the details, but I think that kind of, we get a little bit of mileage on that one. So N.T. Wright, he makes this awesome comment about Exodus, and he says that there's two paths of liberation in the story of Exodus. Or, yeah, two, two paths of liberation in the text. First off, he says, you got to get, there's this story of getting Israel out of slavery. That's, that's, that's kind of where we've been. But then there's this next challenge that we're going to run into in the next few weeks where it's, yeah, Israel's out of slavery, slavery, but how do we get slavery out of Israel? So I want to conclude this morning, and that's a bit of like, a, that, will, that comment will launch us into a bit of what next week's about. But I want to conclude this morning with uh, just a small bit of application. And my guess is that uh, none, of, none of us here this morning are uh, have an Egyptian ruler who's oppressing us and we're in enslavement. Can I get like an amen to that? Or my, there actually might not be an amen depending on like the political spectrum here. I, I doubt it though. I don't think that's the case at all. But uh, definitely, although we're not in that type of enslavement, I think there's situations in our lives um, or things we believe about ourselves or relationships that are just super challenging or recent tragedies or the feelings of trauma that we carry with us that are not as much like like Israelite enslavement, but they they have this dynamic of internal enslavement. And sometimes it even goes a bit farther and you're you're like, it's external enslavement. enslavement. So I have this reminder. Uh, I use reminders on my phone just endlessly. Like I'm always talking to Siri. Hey Siri, make a reminder to buy coffee at 4 p.m. Oh yeah, whatever. So I, I have this uh, reminder that comes on my phone like every single day. And what the reminder is, is I've articulated five habits in my life that I know. I just, I've gotten clarity over time that they, they are, they are the, the key contributors to experiences of inner enslavement for me. And, uh, and I've, this, this reminder comes up uh, every day and that when I'm kind of made vulnerable like that, when I've articulated what actually are my vices, it's in those moments that I know that I need somebody who rejoices in their name being defined as someone who liberates. That it's, 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 it's when you're made vulnerable by the circumstances of life, either by somebody else's doing or your own doing, that we realize that we need somebody who rejoices in our liberation and who gives us grace and patience to, to see that through. So I don't know what you've come here this morning with um, or what's kind of the background on what's the background noise in your, in your mind this morning. But I want to just lend you two questions to, to take away for the next six days till we're back here next week. And the first question is, is uh, and there's no need to share. I'm just trying to get into your personal world from afar, I guess. Yeah, that's the perk, I guess, of being a, a pastor or preacher or whatever. 
Although I don't get to know about it. Anyways, the questions. Where where do you need like an Exodus experience? Where do you just need? You feel like you need you need breakthrough. And my encouragement right now is to in these next few moments and in this next song, clarify what that is. Like nail it down in your mind. Where do you need an Exodus experience? You've hit a dead end, and now you need somebody else to hear your suffering and to act on your behalf. That that is that is the book of Exodus. Secondly, uh, in, that, in, the, in those moments, what does cooperation with God look like? God is endlessly inviting us into cooperation with what His Spirit's doing in our lives. So what does cooperation and whatever that difficulty is look like for you? So I'm going to end with a prayer, then I think musicians, we're, we're good to go for a final song. So Lord, we have a tough time reconciling uh, dense Old Testament ancient literature and what seems to be violence orchestrated by you uh, with Jesus and this approach of full-on non-violence. And that in the face of that, we know that we just meet dead ends personally and that we're folks that uh, need someone to uh, hear our cry. And uh, it's, when, it's when we're being honest that we know that we need help. So... Uh, Come, come into our lives and, and part the Red Seas and make water flow from rocks and food fall from the sky and see us through into a personal Exodus experience this week. It's in your name, Jesus, your name, Yahweh, your essence, uh, that we bother ourselves with coming here and preparing sermons and showing up at inconvenient times. Inconvenient times. So amen, Jesus.